The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good morning. Our sermon this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 2, where Isaiah begins in verse 1 by saying, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. A reference is made here to a mountain. Considering the poetic way in which prophecy is often communicated, it's unlikely that Isaiah is talking about a literal vertical protrusion from the rocks and mud from sea leveled surface of the earth. Rather, this word mountain is used to symbolically refer to something that does still indeed have those majestic characteristics, produces the same accessibility to man's awareness, and inspires a similar level of awe in its observers, as does a literal mountain. Two times in my life, I was granted the privilege of standing before mountains so great that they stole attention from and concern for everything else in their vicinity. After being awed by viewing the wildlife of the plains of Kenya, gazelle and zebra, lions and cheetahs, rhinos and hippos, elephants and giraffe, when Mount Kilimanjaro came into view, every one of those things disappeared. Not in reality, but in my mind. When I came to the foot of Mount Fuji in Japan, climbed to its highest peak, and the clouds were no longer our ceiling, but became our floor, nothing was our equal anymore. Isaiah references a projection higher even than those things and labels this mountain as the house of the Lord, that place where he dwells. Again, this is not a physical mountain like Kilimanjaro or Fuji, but it is something that elicits the same kind of majesty only on a more grandiose scale, which cannot be matched by any other. The house of the Lord, while not bound by walls or natural borders, is where he dwells. And of course, where he resides is in his people, collectively referred to as the church. Isaiah ends his description of this mountain by saying that all the nations shall flow to it. It will arise above every other structure, every other ideology, every other system, and every other interest that demands attention. And when attended, the nations, not a nation, not exclusively Jew or Gentile, will abandon all other missions and move towards this mountain. Spurgeon writes, what grand hopes are kindled in our bosoms by words like these. The church has always been a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, but still she has not been known in all the parts of the world and she has never been known with that universal eminence which attaches to the things of this world, the things of pomp and show. But the day shall come when she shall be the highest of the high her mountains shall be established on the tops of the mountains when she shall be best known of all of the known and shall become what she was always meant to be, that metropolis of the whole world, the center to which all kindred shall flow. Not the Jews alone shall then possess the oracles of God, but all nations shall flow unto it. Isaiah continues in verse 3 where he says, And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go down to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, 
and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah articulates this verse very wisely and strategically, communicating a world of information in just a few words. Firstly, in verse 3, he does not use the word races, most likely because the notion of multiple races is not created by God. Instead, he uses the phrase many peoples, which is consistent with God's creation in Genesis 10, not of races, but of nations. All of these nations are under the same eternal curse, whether Jew or Gentile. In recent days, our national discussion has become so heavily focused on race that we have all but instantly forgotten about a global pandemic that has radically impacted every one of our lives. It is unfortunate that man has perverted the discussion of race for his own purposes, to manipulate, to do harm, to discriminate, and even to gain. The Lord only speaks of one race, that's Adam's race to which all humans belong. Cursed by the fall, sentenced to a death penalty from which none can escape, doomed to spend eternity apart from their creator. It is likely that Isaiah shocked many with his inclusion of many peoples in this blessing, as this would have meant that those who do not physically descend from Abraham would actually, along with those who are physical descendants of Abraham, experience a compulsion to seek Yahweh, to learn of his ways and to walk in his paths. Secondly, it would also be a miracle that any at all would seek God in this way. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 2.14 when he states, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In order for any to shake off the chains that enslave them to the eternal curse that prevents correct spiritual discernment, the mind of God must first be present and must be gifted by God himself, since the cursed mind of man will only see spiritual truth as foolishness when left to its own devices. The objective to go to God with the desire to be taught by him and with the desire to abandon the ways of man in exchange to live in accordance to the ways of God can only be produced by God himself. Praise God that he will extend this to all peoples, regardless of history or national origin. In verse four, he continues where he says, he shall judge between the nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Again, how timely our consideration of Isaiah's words is. During a time of unrest between peoples and our nation, as well as hostilities with nations without, we see hope that this enmity will indeed end. We will have an all-wise, all-righteous, all-knowing, all-powerful judge who will make rulings on our disputes. And look at the outcome. They will beat their swords, items used for war and destruction, into plowshares, items used during peacetimes for productivity. The nations will cease to fight with each other to a new extent. They won't even learn war anymore. Even when we have times of peace, we continue to strategize and prepare to be effective in battle for when such an occasion inevitably rises. It will no longer be inevitable. James tells us in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. The spirit of the flesh will be conquered once and for all by that of Christ. Spurgeon charges us, let each one of us labor mightily according as the spirit worked in us to bring about a consummation so devoutly to be wished. Before this day can come about, though, a problem, a serious problem must be identified and dealt with. Verse 5, Isaiah says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah is compelled to issue this command in response to a tragic response by God towards those that are at this time still called by his name. Mind you that these following verses are not directed to the pagans. It's not directed at the surrounding nations who do not know God or call themselves by his name. This is directed to those uh, who are called by his name. In verse 6, it says, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. Now, what we've got to ask here is why would God do such a horrible thing? Why would he reject his own people? Well, it continues by saying, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the, the children of foreigners. Verse 7, their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their own hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Now, God's people here have diverted their attention and loyalty away from God to other things that they deem worthy of worship. Things that are more appealing to them, things that they think are more capable of providing safety, comfort and gain for them more so than God is capable. God's people here have obtained these ideas and things from the other nations around them and from within them because, remember, they never completely dispense with the idolatrous nations of Canaan as they were commanded to from the beginning. Isaiah expresses in chiastic prose here where he presents the reasons of God's rejection as points A, B, C, and then we see judgment in D, and then identifies the consequences as D prime, C prime, B prime, and A prime, as we back out of the chiastic structure. Now, A, they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Forgive me, that's D. D, they strike hands with children of foreigners making deals for gain and as a result have land filled with silver and gold with no end to their treasures. Silver and gold are not evil unless obtained via ungodly means. D here partners with D prime. They follow the ways of the Philistines, a people advanced in technology and warfare as seen by their many horses and chariots. Here C partners with C prime. They have adopted the superstitions and idol worship impressed upon them by the pagan nations of the East who bowed to the accommodating deities crafted by their own hands. Here B partners with B prime. God's rejection of them is therefore pronounced resulting in their humbling and being made low 
where A partners with A prime. Therefore, since God's judgment is upon you, verse 10, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. What we need to keep in mind is that before the blessed conditions described in verses 1 through 4 can be realized, the sins of verses 6 through 8 must be purged. And as we look at this, keep in mind that Isaiah is not writing to the pagan nations. He is writing to those who are called by God's name. Verse 11, the haughty looks of a man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Here we need to remember that he will share his glory with no one. And just like he systematically humiliated each of the Egyptian gods by demonstrating his power over them and dismantled the Egyptian pantheon prior to the great exodus, we see here a similar approach. God will systematically lay low every lofty thing until the only elevation that is visible is his mountain. Woe be to the one who designs any tower to challenge God's glory. Verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of, the, of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Man and what man has created has no power. Yet uh, we... And when I say we, I'm not talking about we Americans or we, uh, the people of our culture. I'm talking about we as those who refer to ourselves or call ourselves by God's name. We fall into the same trap. We begin to worship things that God has not created, but things that man has created. Sometimes we uh, do so by putting our hope in it. Sometimes we do by hoping against it, but either way, we allow those things to determine our fate or influence our well-being. We need to make sure that we do not fall into the dangerous thinking that this is for them at that time and not for us who wear the name of Christ and pat ourselves on the back for embracing the sound doctrine of the Reformation's justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. While this belief is correct, we've got to figure out, do we really embrace it? Do we proclaim faith in Christ, but then place our trust in our politicians and government? If we worry about Trump or Biden being powerful enough to save us, 
or on the flip side to hurt us with their policies, our trust is not where we say it is. If we think our prosperity is adequate to get us through challenging times, we underestimate God's judgment when he decides enough idolatry is enough. If we count on science to rescue us from all things epidemic, our divine rebuke to rely on God rather than on his creation will soon follow or may actually be here. Welcome to COVID-19. So how does Isaiah chapter two apply to us? After all, we're saved because of Christ's resurrection and the faith we have been granted to be placed in it. While it is true that once someone is saved by grace through faith, that we can indeed be confident that God will complete that work, the question for us is not whether or not we can lose our salvation, for we cannot, but rather are we among the saved to begin with? Isaiah's application here is not to cause us to doubt. Rather, it is to understand God's hatred for idolatry and our own proclivity to worship anything but God. In so doing, it should motivate us to, to evaluate through the fruit of our lives whether we are actually motivated to go up the mountain, whether we are actually motivated to seek learning from the God who is found there, and whether we are actually eager to abandon our ways in exchange for God's ways. If we call ourselves believers, but we put our trust in all these other idols, God will not share his glory with anyone and uh, he will destroy them. While the description of God's destruction of anything that steals his glory should instill terror in the idol worshiper, the description of the authentic believer's final destination at the top of the mountain should bring that believer hope and peace.